How to be an artist. Step 36. Who am I? With guest Philip Seavey. Uh, so, um, Philip Seavey, welcome to How to Be an Artist. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, it's it's been a while since we've caught up, so I'm stoked to be able to sit down with you and and uh, compare notes on comics since since last we we talked. Which I don't I don't have a lot of notes to compare because I haven't I've been doing jack squat since since we last <laughs> talked. But um, I'm sure I'm sure. Yeah, it'll be fun to at least pick your brain on some things. Um, yeah. And just uh, just catch up, I guess. So yeah, totally. Um, I kind of thought, you know, I've I've done a couple episodes on this podcast where I've had to talk with some different people working with different um, different publishers. So, mm-hmm. and obviously, I've my my experience is with Image, and so I thought it'd be really cool to kind of hear your experience with Dark Horse. What was yeah. like working with them as a publisher? How that was a little bit different. I know people that are listening; they really like those types of conversations. Yeah. So. Um, and yeah, I think that'd be cool. And I think that would just open up a lot of really interesting um, questions and other other opportunities for discussion. So um, I guess like like the, the, a good place to start here is, yeah, I'm interested in how kind of triage, since that was the last thing that came out from Dark Horse that you did. Yeah. I'm interested in kind of the generation of that project, how that came to be. So maybe you can start by telling the story of, of how it came to be and we can kind of go from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, so triage was a uh, 2019 mini series I did that I wrote and drew and I did the colors, everything but letters. Um, so it's a creator owned project. Um, so it was a little bit different than a work for hire, but that came about because of a relationship I developed with dark horse starting in my first project I did for them was 2015. Um, mm-hmm. when I got hired to do a uh, tomb Raider comic, um, and Mariko Tamaki was writing it. She had just won the Eisner for this one summer and they were rebooting the series. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. So I was brought on to draw the first, I think six issues and mm-hmm. that, that morphed quickly into 24 issues. And then they ended up stopping the book after 12 issues. So it was kind of like a little bit all over the place, but I worked on Tomb Raider for them for a solid year. Uh, and then about a year later I had, there was a new editor on the Tomb Raider series cause they did a couple mini series post our 12 issues um, she reached out. Um, her name's Megan Walker, and Megan mm-hmm. had just kind of taken over the Tomb Raider franchise at Dark Horse, and they had a new miniseries coming up. But they, uh, she wanted to bring me back to draw some more, um, so I had to come back and draw four more issues. And that series was called Tomb Raider Inferno, that uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly wrote. Uh, and it was a really, really fun project. It was fun to come back. Um, I think where it stands, I've drawn 16 issues of Tomb Raider, and the artist who's drawn the most is Andy Park. And I think he's drawn okay. 17 and a half. So I have to draw two more issues of Tomb Raider in my career to hold the record <laughs> for the most issues drawn. Um, but yeah, as Tomb Raider Inferno was wrapping up, Megan reached out and she said that uh, all the like comics projects on her slate as an editor had kind of wrapped up. And Dark Horse editors will do a lot of comics and art books or other things like that because Dark Horse is a really kind of uh, robust publishing side as it relates to video games and other things like that. So she was looking for pitches for a new uh, series. She didn't have. She wanted to have some creator-owned books that she was editing. Um, so that was just before San Diego Comic-Con. Um, I had a pitch for another sci-fi series that I haven't done yet, but I, I worked on that pitch for months and months and months. And about three days before the show, I was like, maybe I should come up with one other idea. And it wasn't even necessarily for Dark Horse. It was just, you know, to have a pitch in my back pocket because I had editors at a bunch of different companies I was going to talk to about creator-owned projects. Um, 
so like I just came up with a really brief concept, like a rambling paragraph of an idea. And I had, I think, three or four character designs, the main, the three main leads of triage. I don't even think I had the, the, uh, the bad guy designed. Um, so yeah, I just threw those together and kind of just threw it on my iPad. So when I sat down with Megan, I showed her the pitch for the much longer series. The, the, the pitch itself was like 40 pages. I had concept art. I yeah. had 30 pages, 40 pages of story. I had pitch, all this stuff. And then I showed her triage and the basic concept for triage, um, is that, uh, our main character, Evie, she had teams up with alternate reality versions of herself to save the world. Um, and you know, one of the alternate reality versions is a superhero and one is a like post-apocalyptic furiosa badass, et cetera. Uh, and our main character is, is a nurse. Uh, she's a human. She doesn't have any powers. She's struggling in life, trying to just figure out her place. And then suddenly she's shown like, here's all the other things you could be in another world. Um, and she has to kind of mm-hmm. work with them to figure out what's happening, why they're being hunted. And also like, who, how do you, how do you define yourself? Um, is it by the things you can do or is it who you are inside and kind of overcoming those insecurities and whatnot to really tap into the, the, the true essence of who you are. Um, and yeah, Megan really mm-hmm. liked the pitch. She said, why don't you like put this together in a PDF and send it to me? Um, cause I didn't even have it. Like the, the pitch wasn't even written down. It was just like me talking like that. Um, and, and I had like show, three designs, three designs. Like, here's kind of what the designs would be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after the show, I put that together and emailed it to her. And then within a, like four or five weeks, she had it approved for a five issue miniseries. So oh, nice. <laughs> and, and then within the next, I think three or four weeks, I was writing the outlines and the scripts and having to figure out like, what does the full story look like beyond just this concept? And, yeah, that was 2018. Um, I got approved September 4th of 2018. And I think the first issue hit the shelves that same day, the next year in 2019. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah and you've kind of mentioned before that the uh, kind of production on this was, was pretty laborious. Like it was, yeah. it was a lot to, to take on. So, it was, yeah. 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 I had done a book, um, a one shot before triage kind of in between my Tomb Raider stints called paradox. And it was a 30, mm. 32 page story that I did everything on. Um, I originally published it just to kind of as a web comic, a page a day type thing for a month, just as a fun, like creative flex, just to do something entirely different stylistically format wise, everything. And then I ended up um, kickstarting it and, and printing it and publishing it, self publishing it. And then about two years later, another publisher came and reprinted it for the direct market. But that was the first time I had done something that was published where I did everything kind of start to finish. That wasn't like mm-hmm. a pitch or something I did for myself. And so that was a kind of a fun warm up to be like, how do I how do I work on all aspects of something at the same time? But triage, I spent like from the time I started writing the outlines to when I finished the last issue, I think it was 15 months straight of work. Um, wow. so it was four or five months of scripting and then about two or three months of production design basically. And even after that, it designed everything I needed for about half of the first issue because <laughs> there was so much stuff to design. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, and then I just, I had to get, I had to get drawing the damn thing. It was going to hit the shelves at some point. I think by the time they announced the book, I was working on the second issue. Like I wanted to be so much further ahead, but that first issue took me four months to draw. Um, so after that, yeah. each issue was faster. By the time I hit the third issue, I felt like I was on my regular five-week schedule. Um, but starting something new where you're creating all the characters and designing the worlds, and there's three to four different worlds and all sorts of stuff. was just, I, I absolutely loved it, uh, but it was a lot of work. <laughs> 
And how was, how was Dark Horse as you were kind of working through all this like pre-production stuff? Um, did you already have kind of like a firm release date or are they kind of like, hey, just kind of let us know where you're at? And Yeah. So for this one, once we were approved and I started putting together like my scripts and outlines and starting to like make it a little bit more solid than we got on the schedule. Um, so once we were on the schedule, I think was probably the beginning of 2019 and I had nine months until the first issue came out. Um, so then it was just like, all right, let's get it done. And I didn't really have deadlines per se. Um, but I know as we got towards the fourth and fifth issue, Megan was reaching out and being like, we really need to (laughs) make sure we hit these dates. So these books come out on time. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, uh, like they were great. Uh, Megan, who I've worked with, like I said, previously on this project and we're working on a project now together, um, has always been fantastic and super supportive and very helpful in her feedback and guidance and really just kind of like trusts me um, Mm. in my creative process. Um, Even this, you know, I could talk a little bit about this later. I'm working on a project right now. I sent her the first 13 pages the other day and like her Mm -hmm. notes essentially at this point were just like a couple lettering formats um, because I'm lettering this next book myself. But beyond that, she was like, you know, everything looks fantastic. I love it. So that's for me, that's kind of nice to not have a lot of hands on, especially when it's kind of my own thing. Um, mm-hmm. not that I don't appreciate, like, I love feedback and guidance and help. And she gave me that along the way, but at the same time, there wasn't ever a feeling of like micromanaging or giving me notes to death. She was just kind of like, um, this is your thing. Like I trust what's going on here and that you can pull it off. So for better, or for worse, the honest, was how many, <laughs> how many, uh, issues did you kind of want done when the issue one first came out? Like what was the initial plan for that? Yeah. I mean, I was hoping I would be. Oof, if not done with the last issue, close to done with the last issue. Oh, okay, yeah. And I think by the time the first issue dropped, I had finished issue three. So I wasn't, I was making maybe an issue to an issue and a half behind where I wanted to be, but I think we still hit, the last issue might have been a week late. I don't, I can't quite remember at this point, but we hit relatively close to all the the release dates that they set up for me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I grew up reading comics in the 90s, like during the Image and Top Cow era where books would be like two years late. So, you know, a week or two didn't feel too bad (laughs) to me. There was no battle chasers. (laughs) Well, geez, there's there's a lot you're taking on with this project too. And so, I mean, I kind of know the drill. Um, Yeah. And, you know, writing itself can be so much work. And obviously there's like the penciling and the layouts and Mm -hmm. which is the standard stuff for an artist. But then on the other end, the coloring too. Coloring is such like a huge task to take on. (laughs) It is. It is. Um, So before triage, kind of in between Tomb Raider, Inferno and triage, I did a book called The Freeze for Top Cow. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was written and created by Dan Wickline. So I wasn't writing it. But when Top Cow approached me, I said, like, can I color the book? I want to color myself um, for like a Mm -hmm. larger project outside of like Paradox. Um, So they said, yeah, like Top Cow is kind of the company that broke me in and who I've kind of done a lot of stuff with over the years. Uh, and they've always, again, kind of given me a lot of artistic freedom and, and trust, which is incredible. So, yeah, that was the first it was a four issue series, the first time I colored myself. Um, and then when I came back uh, a couple months later to do triage, I kind of I decided, well, let me completely redo the approach in which I have to color everything. So, like, it wasn't like everything I learned was thrown away. But it was like, <laughs> we're going to do this entirely different. <laughs> I think I colored the first page like four or five or six times, just different ways until I found the look that oh, I wanted. Geez. Just and I wanted to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to. Yeah, super and it's saturated, like it's not. Out. It's not like a simplistic. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted something that felt like, you know, like 90s comics on acid, like super saturated, really bright, lots of effects, lots of colors. So it took me a while to kind of find the right feeling for what I wanted in the book. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It doesn't look just from looking at it. It doesn't look like an easy approach to coloring either. Like there's definitely kind of a painter, painterly look to it. Mm -hmm. Um, you said that kind of more towards the end of things, you were kind of getting to like a five, five week schedule to get through something. What sort of like efficiencies do you think you kind of discovered in, in the process that helped make that happen? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I did with triage up to that point, the last handful of, I'm trying to think how many issues four, eight, at least six, 14, last 15 issues I'd done previously of other series, I'd done entirely digital. Um, and for mm-hmm. triage, I wanted to ink everything traditional, to have the original art and just to get a little bit slightly different feel. So when I started up issue one, I, I do all my pencils digitally, but then I'll print them onto the board and ink them. Mm-hmm. And it had been like a year and a half or two years since I'd done any traditional inking. So at first it was slow to get back into that, um, to get the right look. And again, I reinvented my approach and style for the book. Um, so by the time I got into issue three and four, like I was finally comfortable um, with my traditional inks again. Like I felt like I was not taking two and three times as long as it could if I was back on the computer. Um, so that really sped up a lot as I got comfortable again. It's not like the first issue I felt was bad. It just took like twice as long to ink as it should have just because I was, you know, getting used to the tools and wanting to make sure it looked a certain way and had a certain feel. And um, yeah, yeah. So those are some of the things. And then I think by the time once I kind of figured out my coloring, I colored the whole book like in four to five days. Um, it was a real easy process mm-hmm. to just pat, you know, power through five, six pages a day um, because coloring to me works really t- well together in, in blocks. I would typically pencil and ink one page at a time, um, but coloring, I would just take mm-hmm. the whole issue once I had it flatted and just get it all done really quick. So, Yeah, I kind yeah. of prefer to do things that way as well. Yeah, I was just gonna say I've talked to some artists that they that they say like, oh yeah, I'm, I will pencil a whole book or something, and then I go back and ink the whole book. And Oof. for me, that's <laughs> I like to do page by page. You know, I I don't know why, but for color, yeah, for color, I like to do it like I, same as you. I like to do it all at once. You know, it's I don't know if it's just the flow of it, like yeah. getting to see the colors kind of flow together because there's really there's something specific about how the way like one page relates to the next with colors. That's, that's a uh, pretty, pretty important to me, I guess. I don't know if yeah. you have I something feel similar. Like, I feel the exact same way. Yeah. Like penciling inking, I need to feel accomplishment or else I'll feel like I'm getting nowhere. <laughs> so completing a page is like the good yeah. job. You completed a page, but yeah, with colors, they, there's such like a chromatic flow to stuff that it makes it easier to do it in chunks or the whole issue or graphic novel. But once you felt like you kind of established the look, you felt like you could kind of just like rock through it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it seems like mostly it was about like, you had a lot of time up front. There was just like a lot of figuring things out. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of got that inertia and the momentum of like figuring stuff out, you could just like kind of, kind of work with that. Yeah. And combination of just like, you know, publication was looming on the horizon. So I just had to get it done. You had to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> were there any kind of surprises that came up towards the end where you're kind of like, Oh, wait a second, here's this big thing I need to figure out that I haven't figured out yet. And, (laughs) um, I think one of the things just that kind of came as I was going along, um, is yeah, a lot of the design stuff. Like I designed a lot of stuff up front, but I just didn't have time to design the whole thing. So I would have to be designing a lot of things on the fly 
um, I found myself rewriting the script as I went the entire time. Like I knew where it was ending and I knew all my main beats, but I was like tinkering and finessing and tweaking things all the way up to the end. Um, there's a moment in the, I think it's the fifth issue. So it's the finale and I'll be vague about it for, you know, those who are listening, who want to read the book. Um, but there's a reveal on who the antagonist is. Um, and very early on and for a long time, that reveal was entirely different. Um, and it had almost no meaning to it because I liked the idea of like a faceless bad guy, essentially, to where there was no like necessary connection per se. It was just like a force of nature bad guy. It's not like, you know, when in, you know, Terminator 1, when you melt all the skin off Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're not like, it's, you know, John Connor's clone or something like that. You're like, oh, it's the robot we thought all along because that that force of nature is the horror in it. And that's kind of where I was at for a long time. And um, really early on, I had a friend of mine who works in uh, TV and film and animation writing as well as comics. He read my scripts and he was like, no, nah, it should be this person right here. And I was like, oh, that's such a good idea, but that's so different than what I wanted. But then yeah. as I as the book was published from issue one, people were speculating about who the bad guy is. And I was like on podcasts and people were asking me and I started to realize like, people were very invested in figuring out the connection, like, and not just like a conceptual connection, but like, who is this person related to? Who's the bad guy? Um, so I found myself by the time I got to the fifth issue, I rewrote that reveal um, to fit that feeling of like, who's it connected to? And I think it's, it changed kind of what I was going for, but at the same time, it still was a really cool story moment. And I was totally fine with that. Um, as I noticed the- Yeah, it was, it was a surprise for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a big change for me, and I really like how it worked, and a lot of people really reacted and gave me a lot of good feedback. So that was a big change at the end, but at the same time, I think it still worked really well for the story. So, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the blessing and the curse of being the the writer and the artist is, like, <laughs> you can keep writing down to the, the very last moment. Like, I've even actually had stuff where I penciled it, and as I'm inking, I'm like, I'm going to change this this panel here. <laughs> I mean, yeah. did you do very much editing on the page like that, do, changing story beats on the page ever? Um, I'm sure I did some. I, I can't think of any moments that were really big. I think for me, it's more so like once I get to the page and start working on it, if the clarity of the moment or the emotion of the moment isn't coming through, then I'll happily set aside what I have to rework it. And there were pages like that, I think, especially in the last issue or two, where I was like, I know what I want and I know what I wrote and I know what I sketched, but it's not working at all the way it's supposed to. So let me go back to the drawing board. And, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was any like major reversals as I was drawing it. It was more so just refining the storytelling to hit things the way I yeah. wanted it to. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, so as far as writing goes, how much of your writing happens like on the page mm-hmm. or, or, you know, as you're actually like writing, writing and how much happens like within layouts, like what's the balance for you on the, on that? Yeah, probably more happens on the page, like as I'm writing it. Um, Mm. I had all these scripts written closely before I started drawing. Like I said, I was rewriting throughout the way, but the first, I think, three issues were fairly similar to what I had when I started drawing each issue. Um, Mm. When I wrote these scripts, because it was the first thing I ever wrote for Megan, um, and I was like, oh man, she's trusting me a lot that she got a whole series approved on a paragraph and I've never written anything for her. I wrote my scripts like very standard and very structured, like page one, panel one, description, dialogue, dialogue, panel two. Okay. Um, yeah. Whereas normally wow. when I write when I write for myself in previous small projects or things on the side, I write it a little bit more like a screenplay where I just say like page mm-hmm. one and then 
dialogues and descriptions than page two and so on. So I have flexibility to arrange it however I feel. But like this one was, it it felt overwritten to me, but it was more so I just wanted her to be able to see what it was that I wanted to accomplish, um, to kind of trust, to be able to trust my writing. Um, and some of the projects I'm working on now, I've, I've switched back over to the much looser format because I'm working with people. She's one of them who's like, oh, we've worked together on this and she understands how those words are going to translate to a page so I don't have to be as, as detailed. But I tend to try, I want to get everything down. I want to make sure my dialogue is, is fairly locked so I can write the emotions and the character acting to the dialogue instead of just like generic face and I'll write the dialogue later. Um, but then, yeah, because, you know, just like with you, as if you're writing and drawing, I can make adjustments along the way. If I'm like, ooh, I don't like the way that dialogue is, let me rewrite it as I'm drawing the page just to make sure my characters match to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, I mean, it's, I, I kind of know the experience of being this, like the, the lone soldier and how much, how much work that can be. It's mm -hmm. funny. I just talked to uh, Doug Wagner last week. Um, and he's talking about his process and he's, I mean, he's a writer, so he's always working with an artist and he was just like singing the praises of like collaboration, like how collaboration <laughs> is important for him as far as like staying true to what he's doing and pushing himself. And you obviously you've done a lot of projects where you've worked with writers and stuff. Did you feel like you're missing out on that a little bit in this project of having that right amount of tension? Um, what was your, I mean, I don't know. I it, are, like, what are you looking for now? Or did you desire some sort of collaboration now? Or do you like kind of working on stuff yourself? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, with triage, and a couple other projects that was kind of my push into like the writer artist space like a cartoonist and that's yeah. always what i've wanted to be um so i that's the direction i want to go in and i want to stay in but at the same time when there's opportunities to work with really cool collaborators of course i'm going to do it like I, I love collaborating with people i love when you hit those moments of synergy between different partners um so yeah like I, i'm not locked into one or the other i think it's very like opportunity specific and working on this by mm. myself yeah like i think i think i move a little bit faster when i'm working with a writer because i don't have to make all the decisions you know when you're working with a writer your job is to take their script visualize it how they see it and make it uh even better if possible um, and that's a very like different skill set than you know the endless array of choices you can make when you're both writing and drawing something like the the playing field's so big it can be overwhelming um, so yeah, I, I like both. I'd like to stay probably in the writer artist space a little bit more, but at the same time, like, uh, there's projects I'm talking to people to right now where it would be collaborative projects and they're really exciting and really fun. So I'm happy to set aside projects where I'm cartooning everything to focus on collaborative stuff, uh, collaborative stuff. Yeah. Do you, did you find that, or do you find in this process now that you need to have someone to bounce you know, ideas. I don't know if that's like Megan or if you have other people that you find are your people that you need to kind of throw your ideas against and test your things. And oh yeah, yeah, having kind of a, a feedback group is is incredible. I've got a group of uh, comic artists and, and writers and editors and friends that a lot of us went to art school together, and then we've got to know each other through the industry over the years. And typically, outside of COVID years, um, we'll get together in the winter. <laughs> Uh, at a cabin somewhere for like a weekend and just basically spend the whole time throwing out the pitches or the art or the ideas or the scripts, anything we have worked on or working on currently and just do like big group critiques and feedback sessions to kind of help us kind of 
rearrange and guide ourselves. So like in the beginning of 2019, I showed up and most people will have like a pitch or two, right? So five, 10, 15 pages, depending on what it was. I showed up with five full scripts of triage. I was like, there's 120 pages, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and everyone read through them and gave me really great feedback and help. And, and, uh, and yeah, I think the last time we were together, I thought it was probably 2018. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I was 19. Last time we were together, I had a, a spec screenplay that I had written. So again, another like chunk of pages that everyone read through and, and just kind of having that group to bounce stuff off of and to get really good and really honest feedback. Because, you know, depending on who you're working with, they either don't have the time sometimes or the skill set or, you know, or, you know, their tastes align with yours so well that they don't see some of the issues you might be missing. So to have kind of that room and that group of people to really just kind of knock you around is actually a super uh, helpful uh, thing that I really valued. And I think it, it, it reformed those scripts a ton um, before I went into production on them to have some really great, really intense feedback from about 20 or 30 of my friends. Oh, good. Uh, and what, you said you went to art school. Where, where did you go to, to school? Yeah, so I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, which is SCAD uh, in Savannah, oh, Georgia. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah and I, I got my MFA in sequential art. Graduated in 2012, so whatever many years, nine, nine years ago. Yeah. was And I, I know you mentioned before, I think I read some stuff. I, I thought it was interesting that, that you were doing like some finance. Was the finance stuff after that or was that before that? Like how, what was, what was the, uh, um, yeah, series of events there, the order yes. there? So that was before I got my undergraduate degree in corporate finance. Um, and I worked for Goldman Sachs for three and a half years. I'm just doing like financial operations. Um, and yeah, I kind of set drawing and creative stuff aside as like, you know, a young 20 year old, cause I was scared of being able to pull it off and what people would think of me and kind of those weird self pressures that I just, I just chickened out. Um, and then after mm. working in finance for a couple of years, I was just like, oh, I hate this so much. And if I'm not creating, <laughs> I'm just going to wither and die. So I started doing stuff on like, I was writing scripts a lot. Um, I eventually started doing a web comic because it was a combination of like, I can write a story and draw it and put it out there without anyone's approval. I just, you know, put the pages together and throw it online. Um, and that kind of led me into uh, finding art school and getting back into comics and doing that uh, full time now. So, yeah. So, but you initially, you, even before you got into finance, you like had wanted to do art, like art was a thing where it's like, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. But, um, but it was kind of this type of thing where like, yeah, I don't think I can really do that or. Yeah, no, I was like nine years old, been a comic fan all my life. And I picked up uh, Chris Claremont and Jim Lee's X-Men number one. Um, okay. and I read it that night and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, so I was just, you know, drawing endless characters as a kid. And as I got into my teens, I started doing portfolio samples and taking them to San Diego Comic-Con and showing them around and getting feedback slash torn to pieces. And, <laughs> um, and I didn't quite understand like the level of dedication and learning that it takes to do comics. I was just like, if I draw all the time, I'll be really good. Um, I missed the whole like learning aspect of it, but yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I did that. I mean, I, started taking portfolios samples to set to comic-con in 1999 um and i would do the at least that every year until 2002 sometimes i would do samples and mail them in i've got a handful of like really cool rejection letters with company logo letterhead they don't do anymore <laughs> um and yeah like right so uh, I, i'm sure we would get into this too but like so i grew up and for a good chunk of my life was devoutly mormon 
Um, mm -hmm. And so I served uh, as a Mormon missionary. And right before I went on my mission, I got to have um, dinner with a, one of my favorite comic artists. It turns out a family member of mine was neighbors with this person. So they were like, oh, why don't you uh, come over and meet him? Um, and who was, was it? I'm, I'm not going to say just because okay. I'm going to finish the okay. story. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's, I, I've not had the opportunity to meet this person again, and I'm dying to, and not to like in the throat in his face, but to be like, you know, here I am now, like I made it. But so he looked at my stuff, and yeah. again, he was super nice, but he was also a really big artist of the '90s, where like if you weren't drawing X-Men by the time you were 18 years old, you were never going to be famous. Um, so he looked at my yeah. stuff, and he was like, "Hey, how old are you?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, I'll be 19 in a couple weeks." And he's like, and he's, and I can't remember exact wording, but the nicest way he basically told me, you're too old and not good enough to make it. Um, and I was like, wow. okay, okay. Um, and he was like, you know, if you go to art school and you dedicate like four to six hours a day practicing all this stuff, I think you might have a chance of making it. But right now you're just like, you're way, way behind the curve. Um, and, you know, as, as someone who was getting ready to go leave on a two year church mission, I was like, I, I don't have four hours a day every day to like devote to this. And. And so like, that was really rough. And so I came home after two years later and I was trying to draw. And when you haven't drawn for like two years beyond like scribble sketches, it just doesn't come right away. It turns out it takes a little bit of practice to get going again. Mm -hmm. But you know, as a, as a 21 year old who doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground, like I didn't know, I was like, oh no, maybe I can't draw anymore. Maybe I was not supposed to do this. So I set it aside for, for a couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I kept that in mind. So when I came back to comics, I was like, oh, this is a, like uh, a discipline that I have to study and these are things that I have to learn and I have to kind of put these things into practice. And that's what ended up leading me to art school. So even though it was like a really rough uh, conversation as an 18 year old, and that's not the advice I would ever give anyone. Um, I can also understand <laughs> where he was coming from, from where his background was. And also like it was, there was still really good advice in there that kind of helped me understand where my gaps were and how my learning style needed to be adapted to to in order to get where i needed to be and, and i wouldn't be here working in comics without that conversation it just you know maybe derailed me for a couple of years as i was trying to figure out life <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, i mean so was it was it kind of a blessing and a curse in, in some ways like it kind of threw you for a loop but then lit a fire with you at, at the same time or um yeah, I mean, I think what it did is it gave me an insight and a, and a look into the things that are needed beyond just that, like, well, if I draw comics, I'll eventually be really good at comics, right? Which is not true. Um, you don't have to go to school. You don't have to take courses. You just have to understand in order to do the stuff you need to learn and you need to study. Um, yeah. And you need to, you know, if, whether it's from books or comics or YouTube videos or talking to other people or online courses or in-person art school, find the avenue that fits your learning style to study this stuff. It's not just like, you know, if you're talented, you're going to do it. Like talent is important, but at the same time, talent is not going to make you learn. It's not going to give you the knowledge you need in order to draw comics. Yeah. It's good to have those types of experience. And I think this is why like Comic-Con has always been fantastic. Um, anytime you kind of are just like face to face with people actually doing it, mm -hmm. it gives you like this, this really embodied sense of like, oh, wow, okay, this is what it takes. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's something so weird about like, even you can watch a video of someone drawing versus you watch someone drawing something in real life. And there's something that clicks seeing yeah. someone in real life, you know, or you go and it's like, you're getting outside of your fantasy world and you go and you show people your stuff and people are like, here's what you got to do. You got to do that. Here's where you are. 
you got to be over here. I mean, mm-hmm. and that stuff can be so helpful just to like get a sense. And then you have like a real sense of like, oh, okay, I know how to actually get to this place. Yeah, you know, even if sure. it is going to be, you know, work or whatever to, to get there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, something about what you've said, kind of the story of, of kind of being scared, I guess, and, and taking a diversion into finance for a little bit. That's something that like really resonates with me, you know, like I, I've, there's been so many things where I've, I've like not done things out of fear, but there's kind of this, it's almost like pulling back a slingshot. It's like you do something out of fear and then the experience of like kind of running for something can be so miserable mm-hmm. that it's like, okay, the fear is not as bad as whatever I'm experiencing right now is way worse than the fear. <laughs> yeah. You're like, you know, the worst that could happen is it doesn't work out and I'm exactly where I am. <laughs> yeah. So you have literally almost nothing to lose. Was there a moment for you, like a specific moment for you where you kind of made that decision where you're just like, I've got to do art. Like, what was that? I got to get back to this. That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I can pinpoint a specific moment um, other than just that, you know, there was a handful of things around a certain time where I was just like, I'm so unhappy in what I'm doing. And I see time passing so fast. Like I could see myself waking up 40 years from now and I've just been unhappy my whole life at what I've done. Um, And like, I'm not saying everyone out there has to live their dreams. I'm saying like, you have to be happy with what you do. Um, And I wasn't happy unless I was like telling a story. And I realized Mm. like I, this unhappiness is going to translate, is going to like, you know, come out in everything I do, whether it's, you know, personal interactions or relationships or, you know, at the time I didn't have kids, but I do now. I was like, I don't want to be like, you know, living at work and then coming home angry every day just because I'm miserable in what I do. I want to live a life to where, you know, the time that I invest in my career is something that makes me happy. Um, even when it's challenging and difficult because man, comics are way, way more difficult than finance. Um, but I'm much more like satisfied <laughs> in the things that I do. So yeah, it was somewhere around there after I'd been working for the company for about a year to a year and a half. And it still took another two plus years to get to the place where I left to go to art school. But at that point, I, I was at least searching and trying to figure out what I needed to do um, to get out <laughs> to to work. Yeah. Where I was at, you know? Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I had kind of a similar experience where there's kind of like, there's kind of like the decision, like, yeah, this isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of like, okay, let's start making the plans. <laughs> and it takes yeah. a little time to actually get there. Yeah, it does. How old were you when you finally ended up going to, to art school then? Let me think. So I was 27 when I started okay. art school. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that seems young for where I'm, you know, my age now, but at the same time, like I was four plus years older than every other kid in my courtroom in the graduate class that I started in. Everyone was like 22 to 24. All of them were usually coming straight off BFAs. Um, I had no prior art training whatsoever. I'd taken one drawing class when I was like 16 at a community college and that was it. Um, So I felt Mm -hmm. like very behind the curve. Um, but at the same time, being a little bit older, having a little bit more experience, uh, gave me a different drive and like dedication. I was like, I may not be the Mm. best. And I wasn't, I was about the worst in my class, but I was like, but I can probably work the hardest and I would draw or be in Mm. class 15, 12 to 15 hours a day, like seven days a week for two years. I was always working. Um, I think we went on like maybe one or two little vacations during the time, but the rest of it, I was doing all that I could to get out of the art school experience, what I was putting in and I was putting in a lot of money. So. (laughs) (laughs) 
did it help that you like knew the alternative that you could like have that very specific vision of like, well, I know what, if I don't do this, I know where I'm going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it did. Um, I think even after I graduated and then, you know, with any type of creative career, unless you're just amazingly talented, it's going to take a while until you've got into where you want to go. So I had a couple of years where I was like, you know, doing small or part-time comics work, trying to get into to bigger uh, jobs. And, you know, there was always the, the opportunity to go back to where I was. And I was just like, I can't do it. <laughs> if I do that, it'll just feel like I wasted everything that I've done. So I just, you know, kept working really hard at what I've done. So. Cool. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as, as I was reading through um, triage, I was just like, I was thinking a lot about like with my own work, that something happens where I tell a story. There's something that makes me passionate about a story, an image or something. Mm-hmm. And then after I'm done telling the story, I look back at it and I'm just like, oh, this is like such this just obvious story about myself. I can see how it yep. just like tells this story about myself that I didn't see before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious with triage, if there's something like that, that it like kind of revealed something about yourself as, as you kind of went through the process and finished it. Oh, big time. Like anytime I write a story, if I'm going to commit myself to it, I have to emotionally connect to the story. Like it has to be something very profoundly personal to me, whether the story is small and intimate or giant and crazy. Um, Triage was kind of twofold. And one that we've already, we've, we've already kind of been talking about was, you know, in the beginning of the book, Evie, our main character, you know, has worked her whole life um, to be a nurse and to do these things. And she's finally made it to that point. And she's just not happy. Um, and that was very similar mm-hmm. to where I was at with my career, like in, in finance, I worked really hard. I graduated, I wouldn't say top of my class, but I think magna cum laude. So somewhere up there had a good GPA, like had scholarships. I got offers and not offers, but I, I got a job at a top investment bank, even though it wasn't like stock trading or something like that. It was still like, Ooh, what a cool name to have on your resume. Um, and I worked really hard in that job and I, I was, did fairly well. Um, but at the same time it was like, I've done all the things I'm supposed to, and I'm still miserable. Um, That's kind of where I was at when I was trying to figure out, like, what do I do now? Um, So there was that element of connectivity with Evie. And then the second one was, you know, that loss of identity that she suffers um, with that. Like, if if these Mm. things are who I are, how I've defined myself and they're not fulfilling me and or they're not important, then like, who am I in the scheme of things? And then obviously like the, the counterparts mm-hmm. of herself being introduced into the story are like uh, kind of exacerbate that identity crisis. And that ties very closely in to, um, you know, my faith transition, uh, if you want to call it that, where I'd spent 30 some odd years of my life, like yeah. devoutly yeah. Mormon, uh, not even just casual, like <laughs> devoutly Mormon. And somewhere in about 2015 yeah. is yeah. where I, I transitioned out of the faith. Um, issues came up and I just mm-hmm. couldn't reconcile those issues with kind of the, the principles and, and values that I held firm to. And I eventually left and it was a very painful, very difficult and very prolonged uh, process that affected a lot of relationships in my life and still do to this day. And this is now six plus years later. Um, so kind of tapping into that personal um, like pain and process of difficulty and that, like, you know, when you've defined yourself, um, by a concept or an organization or a belief system, and you suddenly don't have that anymore. It's a complete loss of identity. 
Um, you don't know who you are anymore. Yeah. You don't know what defines you. You don't know what's right, what's wrong. You don't know which way to go. There's a lot of questioning your worth as a human and as an individual. And a lot of those anxieties and feelings and, and, and pain are kind of uh, poured into the story uh, in different ways. But, but triage is very much uh, a, a facet of that, um, that process that I went through over the last couple of years. And by the time I had written it, I think a lot of that stuff had gotten to a, like a further along point. I'd processed a lot of it and I'd been able to resolve a bunch of it. But at the same time, like it's still a thing that will kind of forever affect me in one way or another. Um, and that's, that's very much kind of the uh, emotional anchor that I was able to um, secure the story to and to give me kind of that fuel for the 15 plus months I worked on it um, all the way up to the end. I'm still very invested and still to, to this day. It's not like I don't care anymore, but um, the, the original title of triage, the one we pitched and the one that was approved for a long time was called who am I? Um, and we ended up changing that. Yeah. But thankfully, yeah. just, I think from SEO, you can't like, who am I comic is like a Google search that will never get you what I want. But at the same time, I held on to that title for so long. Cause to me, it just, it, uh, it encapsulated what yeah. the story was yeah. about perfectly. So. Triage has a lot more punch, but it's good that you <laughs> knew does. what what the story was, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's it's kind of funny. I've I've been doing this podcast for a little over a year now, and it seems like most of the people I've spoken to have been people that are still like kind of active. I mean, as as far as people that do have a connection to Mormonism, most of the people sure. I've talked to are like active LDS. And so it's interesting to kind of get their perspective and just be like, you know, what is it that the church does for you? And, you know, sure. yada, yada, yada. Um, but yeah, I think I probably ended up leaving probably about the same time as you. I was also okay. devout. I was into it. I was like hundred <laughs> um, percent. But yeah, it was, it was a very long process for me. It was, it was probably like, when I look back at it now, it's like, oh, it's a process that started on my mission. Like oh, okay. I can see like going back to my mission, there's things that I experienced then just little by little and finally it gets to a point where it's just like, yeah, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, <laughs> like it, for me, it was really the, the, the thing where I decided I had to go. It was just like this feeling of like, my heart's not in it, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I can't show up. I think I got some calling, I got some new calling and I showed up for the calling and I'm just like, why am I sitting in this meeting right now? This is yeah. not my thing anymore. Um, you know, the other thing I think is really interesting that you kind of, you kind of highlight a little bit and I'd be interested with it, to hear your experience of this, but there's also kind of this feeling like when you kind of decide to leave, there's a little bit of this grass is greener feeling. I don't know if you felt that at all. You're like, Oh, once I leave, I'm gonna have all this freedom. It's going to be really cool. And I'm going to be able to be my true self. And yeah, like you say, like leaving is a really, really painful process. I mean, it's obviously you got to tell all your family, you know, and people have different reactions to that and different judgments about that. And for some people, it's it's a lot harder than others. Some people, their families are very understanding. Um, but yeah, what you talk about as far as like, you know, what's right and wrong now, figuring all that stuff out, you know, um, the one thing that kind of came to me that you you mentioned in triage is just like this idea of purpose. Like she's kind of thinking about, so what's my purpose now? Like if this, if I am not a nurse, like what is my purpose? Um, and that really resonated with me because that's something that I've been like thinking very, very carefully right about in my life right now. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like 
what have you come to now as far as trying to resolve some of those issues for yourself as far as like right and wrong purpose who you are how you how you kind of like identify yourself or your sense of sense of, of self sure yeah i think I, I don't know if i have a grand answer but i can talk about some of the things that i think got me to the place where i was at and because of that i've realized how important they are to me um yeah so I think the, you know, you talked about kind of where things started and kindly when, when you had a calling to her, like, you know, why am I doing this? Um, for me, I think kind of the, the thing that really pushed me in the direction I was, was just, I think, you know, growing up, obviously growing up Mormon is typically means you're raised in a fairly conservative environment. It's not a one-to-one, mm-hmm. but 90% of Mormonism is very conservative. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah. it's, it's this equivalent. It's hard to not be uh, conservative and Mormon. God bless um, those outliers, right? God bless him, man. They have a rough road to go. I've had a couple of friends like that. I was like, well, the first time I met a Mormon who actually stood up for gay rights, I was like, how does that work? Like, I didn't think you could do this. Um, and I, that's when I was a teenager. That was the first time I was a friend of mine's mom and I was just blew me away, um, but in a good way. And I think that's kind of where I ended up landing is, um, you know, as I got older and grew up and kind of, um, you know, took responsibility for um, my own opinions and choices and decisions, I, I found myself shifting much more moderate and even into kind of a progressive space. Um, and also just experiencing different people. I, I grew up in a very, um, uh, you know, a culture that was very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, very homogenized. Um, most everyone was white. Yep. Most everyone was straight or straight presenting. Uh, most everyone was conservative. Mm-hmm. Most everyone was Mormon. So everyone I interacted with, the the expanse of my world was very, very, uh, very the same. Um, so as I got older and I got to experience different things and have new friends and meet new people, I got to uh, um, view different points of view and different life experience and different uh, stories and different pain. Um, and that, um, that those experiences really much began to, to shape and change my outlook on life. Um, and, and one of the things I spent about five years teaching at uh, Broadview Entertainment Arts University, which is where Doug Wagner and I first met. He was a teacher as well. Yeah. Um, so, oh, between, cool. yeah. yeah. so between working in comics um, and then teaching at Bo, I had a lot of uh, exposure um, to uh, members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, which I had not previously had a lot that I was aware of on like a personal level, um, other than, you know, coworkers mm-hmm. or things like that. And, you know, in between comics and teaching, I had friends, peers, students, mentors. I mean, you can, uh, and then as time's gone on family and friends and other people who are members of the community, and I began to see how life was through their, their experiences um, and the things that they shared. And, just to develop a better sense of empathy for the just extreme difficulties they face, especially those who are coming from or live in religious communities. Um, and that really began to change my outlook on life um, and, and mm. began to make it very difficult to reconcile the things that I had believed or had been taught um, with the reality of life around us. Um, and I think one of the important like, you know, values that I think I've always had, but I definitely um, have tried to strive more for an adult is just kind of the value in in life uh and people's lives and their experiences and and who they are and 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 treating people with kindness um not conditionary kindness but uh just genuine uh kindness and love which is a challenge and it's something i think i I will always be working on but 
Um, that I think is where things really started to shift for me because Mormonism is not a great bastion of acceptance uh, and understanding, especially towards members of the queer community, mm -hmm. uh, marginalized spaces, African-Americans and even women were always things. Even as a kid, I was like, why do we why do why do we treat women this way? Why don't they get more opportunities and why are they always in subservient roles? And what about our history with you know African-Americans and the way we've treated them? And and I think once I. Uh, began to really see the way the LGBTQ community was treated. It was it that was the the kind of the breaking point for me um, was I just can't reconcile yeah. uh, or see how we can claim to you know uh, be all God's children and to be led by God, but we don't treat all of His children the same. Um, and you know, in I live in Utah, uh, and the impact those teachings have on the LGBTQ community, especially the youth. Um, is is dramatic and drastic when we have suicide rates among um, our youth that are three to four times, <clears throat> you know, national average, and and you know the um, the the anxiety and depression and suicidality rates that are accompany um, you know not accepting people for who they are and things like that um, just uh, very much opened my eyes and kind of rocked the world that I was living in to be like we can't live in such a way where we're creating spaces that people don't want to live. Um, and that really yeah. kind of shifted me forward. So going back to like, how, you know, how do I define my purpose and things like that? I don't know if I quite know, but all I know is like the things that have always been important to me, um, specifically treating people with kindness are now more important to me ever than they ever were before. Um, and that's kind of the, mm. the thing that I've, I've tried to focus on and teach my kids and, 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 and whatnot is it doesn't matter who people are, like we need to be kind to people. Um, and kind is not necessarily nice, right? Because being you can be nice and still be terrible mm -hmm. to people. Um, kind is, is sitting in that space of empathy <laughs> um, and, and, and being you know, as loving and accepting as possible. Um, so that's kind of like my long roundabout way of like, I, I don't know, but this is what I'm trying to do every day. And, and hopefully it, it, you know, it, it creates a positive impact more so than maybe a negative impact I created previously. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, kindness is a pretty damn good place to land. If you're going to land someplace, I think it's kind of this really interesting irony too, because I think, I think I was really taught kindness through the church, you know, and it kind of, it kind of sowed the seeds of its own destruction yeah. that it's, it's teaching these, some of these things so well that people like can't, <laughs> you know, can't deal with the other stuff. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, I, I think about people I grew up with, people that I knew that were so loving and so kind, but yeah, eventually I think that that's, that's a similar issue for a lot of people. I mean, that yeah. was really one of the big issues for me was, was looking at like the, the church's stance on, on, you know, gay rights, like prop eight. I remember prop eight being one of those days where I came into church and I was, it was the first time I was just like, yeah, the leaders are wrong on this. Yeah. <laughs> They're wrong on this one, you know? And yeah. it was the thing that really changed me was, was like reading personal accounts or like hearing directly from other people. I remember re a friend had, had a, a gay brother and I read like a blog post by him and that was like a big turning point for me. Yeah. Where I was just, I could see the degree of misery caused by this, this, um, yeah, just kind of the stance of the mm -hmm. church. So, but yeah, it's also, it's also not easy making that choice to, <laughs> to leave, no. right? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me see. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested too now about, um, 
now as an artist, mm-hmm. like, how do you think about, do you consider that like who you are now? Or is there something broader that, that you like to connect to as far as like who you are or something else entirely? Sure. I mean, you're talking about like defining myself as an artist or what are yeah, Sorry, I mean, this is I, this comes from a personal place for me because I I kind of had this an experience um, a few years ago where I I kind of realized like how much my identity had been tied up with being an artist mm-hmm. and kind of how much that was limiting me because I I had this kind of like narrow view of what that meant and once I kind of felt like once I let go of that um that I was actually able to be a better artist in some ways. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know if I if I think of myself quite in those terms because it's funny. Whenever people ask me what I do, I'm always like, "Well, I mean, like I write, but I draw, and I do comics and prose, and maybe some film and TV, and I do concept art." And I think the way that I I try or I feel comfortable defining myself as far as like it's just a storyteller because I feel like mm. like I that's what I've always loved to do. That's what I've always connected to that's the way that I've been able to, I mean, I, I think for a majority of my life until, you know, a couple of years of, of hard self-work therapy and stuff like that, like I was never able to open up and connect with my emotions or open up to people. I was very closed off, be, be it a product of just individual thoughts and toxic masculinity culture and whatnot. Um, but stories was always the way for me to connect with emotions and with people and with differences of opinions and idea and you put something in a movie and I'd react to it versus in my face and I would react differently so storytelling has always been like the most important thing to me in 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 what I do and who I am I mean and and I think I've always used uh those devices as a way to to anything that I do even when I, I remember you know teaching things in church church lessons I would always shape my lessons and talks in in very story format ways. So yeah, I think that's probably how I would think of myself um, were I to define that in in some sort of way. That sounds like a very like essential um, type of human thing to be too. If you can do be a storyteller and be a kind storyteller, then (laughs) (laughs) that's a good package. So you mentioned you did some like, um, some therapy and it's kind of learning to express your emotions. Was that kind of like post post church stuff mostly or? Yeah. 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 The, the, sh- the short of a long story is, you know, faith transition stuff, which I said, you know, as within probably eight months of first like questioning here, like being able to understand what I was feeling beyond just unease. Um, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I decided I was done, but it still took another couple years to fully transition myself out of, um, that space um and in those couple of years i was a combination of that um climate uh in our in our current world and the way i saw people treating each other and kind of the values that were championed that i felt were antithetical to who i was as a person a lot of work burnout there was a very year and a half there where i was i was way overworking myself just trying to get things going and um just difficulties in personal relationships that came about because of church stuff and a lot of that stuff led me to a pretty pretty bad like kind of breakdown and in coming out of that was like, okay, I'm now in my early 30s, I guess we could say at the time. And I realized so many of these things and the way that I navigate and live are just unhealthy. 
Um, I was talking to a friend in, in one of Brene Brown's recent podcasts. She talks about kind of that transitionary stage where you've made it through your 20s and early 30s and all your habits are terrible, but they were survival habits to get through whatever was happening there. And then you have to hit that point where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. shit, I got to do this better or I'm not going to live. And that's kind of where I was. And it was, you know, quite a few year process to kind of figure out like, okay, what, you know, what medications do I need for the time? And, you know, therapy and meditation and yoga and self-care and, uh, you know, books and podcasts and talking to people and, and trying to, um, you know, process unresolved traumas and figure out uh, healthy ways of coping and, and how to handle emotions and things like that. And it's still very much a work in progress. I'm still doing a lot of those things to this day and will be the rest of my life. Um, but it, it, was, it was kind of around that time where everything really broke down and I was like, oh, I can't do that ever again. I won't make it. Um, and even, even because of that breakdown, there's still physical things about myself that have never been the same. Um, like I, I hmm. can't retain things in my memory the way I used to. I used to have a great memory. Now things are just, it's Swiss cheese brain. Like there's certain trauma from just that breakdown that has manifested physically that has altered me as a person. And I was like, okay, we can't ever do that again. So we need to get healthier and we need to get better and we need to show up for ourselves in ways that I've never done before. So. Yeah, yeah, dude, there's, it feels like a lot of parallels there, man. Hmm. I've also feel like I've got kind of that, that brain thing happening. Um, yeah. And I kind of, I kind of had a breakdown and I, it's, it's weird. I, my kind of breakdown was like right before I decided to leave, uh, like work to, to start working on, on comics, but it's probably not, I bet you it's not too uncommon of a thing after people leave the church to probably have some, something like that happen as you're trying yeah. to work things through. Oh, big time. Yeah. The way I've kind of felt about it is like, um, yeah, your whole life you develop these kind of defense mechanisms, right? Like you, you learn how to put on this armor. Um, and at some point it's just like, I, for me, the way it manifests that I just, I just stopped being able to feel anything totally disconnected from my emotions, but also mm -hmm. like I, I was unable to enjoy life. Like life was just like, like I didn't like food, didn't, you know, nothing made me happy. And it's like, I could, there's still something there as far as like, I still want to be a good person, yada, yada, yada. Um, but you know, for me, it was, I, I had the biggest breakthrough, like, like doing meditation that really helped to like undo a lot of that. Um, but the crazy thing that happens as soon as you take off the armor, it's just like, you have all this stuff that's, that's vulnerable and you yeah. don't know what to do with it. It's, you're yeah. just like suddenly just being assaulted by all these like feelings and emotions. And it's like, you're, you suddenly have to learn like new skills to be able to work with all that stuff. So it's like this process. People talk about mindfulness all the time. Like, Oh, mindfulness is so great. You know, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, mindfulness is like the first step. Mm -hmm. Like you become aware of those emotions and then you, there's all this work you got to do to like, figure out what to do with those emotions and how to like work with them. And like, cause it can be really intense. Suddenly you're oh, yeah. aware of your emotions and your emotions are like super shitty and, <laughs> and horrible. And <laughs> yeah. I remember telling my therapist, I was like, I feel like I'm an exposed raw nerve right now. Like everything yeah. that hits me is just intense and overwhelming and it's difficult. And I mean, in the end, I'd rather be a, like, a, I'd rather feel something than not, but yeah, learning yeah. how to, how to handle that and to process that and to, to deal with that is, is a lot of work. Yeah. So what, what has worked for you? You've, you've mentioned a few things. Mm -hmm. um, have there any, any been any silver, several bolts, any silver bullets, like particular 
therapeutic things you've done, anything with meditation? Um, sure. What yeah. has been like, wow, this has been worth the money. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't recommend therapy enough. Um, I think everyone should be in some form, whether it's, you know, weekly, biweekly, once a month check-ins every so often. Um, it's just, that's been uh, incredible for me. And, you know, for everyone, it sometimes takes a while to find the right therapist who specializes in what you need and you connect with, um, but couldn't recommend that highly enough. I mean, I think I've been going for two and a half, maybe three years at this point. Um, cool. And, you know, my, my frequency and regularity changes depending on my needs. And I'm, you know, I don't find any, there was a lot of like stigma I had to get over in order to call my therapist for the first time. Like, I think I had his number in my wallet for a year before I could force myself to call. Just like, you know, I, I was on um, antidepressants for a while um, and it took a lot of uh, mental strength to just go to a doctor and say, hey, I, I need some medication. I can't regulate my brain chemistry. That was a big thing to overcome for myself hmm. just from a pride and stigma point of view. Um, and so the, like, sure. I was on, you know, I was on meds for maybe a year and a half and I'm on some low level maintenance stuff right now. And again, it's uh, adjust things that work for you when you need it is kind of where I found um, what is helpful. Um, meditation is something I was able to finally get myself into last year, about a year ago. It took me a long time of being like, mm -hmm. this is something I should do to finally get myself to do it. Uh, and still at that, um, I, I need to be more consistent. Uh, you know, when life's crazy, it's hard to force yourself to carve out just 10 minutes a day is all about I do. Um, so I think it's, it's really just yeah. prioritizing yourself and realizing by prioritizing yourself, you're prioritizing everything else because you can't show up and be the person you need to be for other people if you're not first giving yourself the ability to show up. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the challenges we get from kind of the way we were raised is you you start by being taught to be selfless and you never have a chance to actually like <laughs> learn to like be a, a mature adult before you start learning to serve, yeah. you know, so... Yeah, I definitely definitely feel a lot of that. Yeah, the stigma is really interesting. I uh, you want to you want to like really experience stigma. It's like tell tell someone you're doing like couples counseling. Like we decided to do some like relationship counseling. And when people hear that, they're just like, that's like the thing people hear. They expect to hear like right before you're saying you're getting a divorce. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. usually like we're about to fly off the edge of a cliff. <laughs> we're gonna do our last shot to do this before we fly off the cliff. Um, but man, I had such a powerful experience, like, like doing relationship counseling and kind of like realizing like, wow, a relationship itself can be therapeutic. You have a healthy relationship and it's like, it makes you happier and you grow. <laughs> Come to find out. <laughs> and then you suddenly start looking at other relationships and you're like, now, why am I friends with some of these other people here that are making my life miserable? You know? Yes. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. And then how, how have you left now? I mean, you don't have to say anything specific, but um, there's, there's usually some tension when you decide to like leave the faith on the balance. Um, I mean, is there still some tension in some places or? Um... Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, my family is, is very devout um, and, and kind of it encompassed some members of my family, it encompasses pretty much 100% of their lives between, you know, church callings and weekly mm -hmm. participation and employment even. Um, and I think, you know, as time's gone on, everyone's been fairly good about how yeah. our relationship is and, and, and not not trying to push in ways that negatively impact that. And I've been really grateful because you just don't know um, some of the experiences I had early on talking to people about it weren't all positive, but 
they were not as, as bad as some of the other people that I've heard. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know. It's, it's, it's a hard thing when essentially you're taught that, you know, if, if you are you know, going to church, everything good in your life is a blessing. If something bad happens, it's either because you didn't do what was right and, or it is a challenge that will make you a better person. So when, when you leave those things, you have to redefine your understanding of the significance of things happening in your life. Something good happens yeah. doesn't mean it was because you were good. Something bad happens doesn't mean it because you're bad. It's life. Those are experiences that happen. And sometimes there is a result of your choice. And sometimes it's someone else's choice. And sometimes it's just life. Sometimes bad things life. happen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as you're moving on to like your next, uh, the next things you're doing, uh, what sort of, what sort of, we haven't covered this yet. I think we talked about this before we started recording. What's, what sort of lessons do you think you've taken with you as, as far as like what, how you're approaching like the next project, like after triage? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working on a graphic novel with Dark Horse right now um, and it'll be out hopefully next year. It's not been announced. So I can't speak too much to it, but I'm doing just about everything. Uh, I'm writing, penciling, inking, coloring, and lettering the book. Um, and I think, you know, between wrapping up triage and starting this project, there was probably about nine or 10 months, I think, in between those two projects. And a lot of that was the COVID pandemic. A bunch of the projects I was going to be working on with two different companies got put on hold or canceled because of there was a shutdown in the industry and it pushed a lot of things back. So I spent about seven or eight months just working on a project that uh, I wanted to do. And I, mm. it still is not with the publisher. I've drawn about 30 some odd pages. The script is nearly 600 pages long. So wow, it's going okay. to be a multi, multi-year project. And it's, again, another intensely personal thing to me. And I, I, it's my favorite thing that I've ever done, if I ever can get it done. Um, but, you know, after wrapping up triage, which was such a tremendous amount of work, there was just a, a big period of burnout afterwards. And I expected that when I work on projects in a very, like, all-consuming way, I know there's going to be a period of time afterwards where I just can't do it. Um, and I think one of the things that I kind of hit burnout on was just kind of American comics. Like hmm. there's so like I've read American comics since I was a kid. I actually love them to death, and I couldn't pick up a book for months without being like, "This is garbage," and throwing it down. When I knew objectively it wasn't garbage, I just wasn't emotionally connecting to anything. Um, so hmm. in that in that period of time, I had some friends who were just huge manga fans, and I've never been a giant manga fan. Um, nothing against it personally. I just couldn't find anything to connect with. And they turned me on to a couple series and I mainly kind of uh, honed in on um, Urasawa's work. So I read like Monster oh, and Pluto. Urasawa. Oh, <laughs> the best, the best ever. Life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I haven't read 20th Century Boys yet. I have them all now. They just finished re-releasing them and that's going to be my fall read. Uh, yeah. But I've read just about everything else I can get my hands on. Um, and like Pluto's just my favorite work of his, of his stuff. I've, I've read 20th Pluto. Century Boy. Okay. And I think, I think Pluto's like, it's just the tightest. Yeah. It's, oh. it's amazing. Pluto's phenomenal. Monster might be my favorite so far. I've read it twice, uh, but it also is just like the way he tells the story. And that one is, it hits all my buttons. Uh, I haven't read that one. I got to check that out. Oh, it's so good. It's uh, yeah, it's <laughs> okay. so good. Um, but yeah, like in looking at his stuff, I was just like, I love the way he combined like his, his character work. It's so simplistic, but expressive and just nails the thing. And you can tell he doesn't labor on his characters. And there's a really nice mm. balance between his characters and these really gorgeous backgrounds. And I, I just love the oh, interplay yeah. you can find in his work. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to stop like slaving over every drawing because I just feel like sometimes like, you know, it, it wasn't what I was getting out of. So I spent probably six months last year, every single day trying to reinvent the way I approach art, like my style, I guess you could say. I wanted a way that mm. had more express, more expression, more energy, 
um, more cartooning, less realism. And it was like months of every day just swearing constantly because it was just not working. Um, <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, like it finally clicked. And it's kind of a new look that I've been using in some of the projects I'm doing, um, especially some of the forthcoming Ooh. ones. Uh, and I, I, I have so much fun with it. And it's so much fun to have fun with what you're drawing. Instead of being concerned yeah, with it yeah. looking fantastic, I'm concerned with like like enjoying it and, and liking what I do. Um, and it's you know it's a faster style, so it allows me to tell stories faster and get kind of that energy and, and satisfaction that I want out of it instead of making it feel like like laborious. Um, so yeah, like kind of some of those things would, that I I feel maybe I overworked in triage, whether it was you know the way I formatted my script. Or how you know how much work mm -hmm. I did on the realism or inking or textures or things like that. Um, I enjoy them and they work great for the book. But I was so happy to be like, oh, I can do this differently. I can find different ways to approach this and make myself happier uh, and whatnot. So yeah, kind of those lessons I've learned are in this new project, which the script was much looser, the drawing is much looser. There's a lot more energy and cartooning and just kind of enjoyment even though it's not it's not a creator own work i'm not working from my original idea it's it's a concept that was developed by someone else that i've adapted um i'm, I'm just having a ton of fun with it and i'm very excited to, to move to pour that forward into future projects and hopefully get back to my giant opus uh sooner than later because yeah <laughs> I think a lot of the lessons I learned, I, I started pouring into that and everything else I'm doing, I'm taking those little things and using them elsewhere, but it'll very much come out in that book whenever I get a chance to finish it. Yeah. I was just saying like, I, that's like such an exciting direction, like hearing that you're taking that, that approach with the art. It just sounds like a very, like, I, I, it reminds me a little bit of like, uh, like Mike Magnola's art. Like mm, if you follow yeah. like his, like he's do very, very detailed stuff. And over time, it kind of just like, there's that refinement to it, you know? Yeah. But I think that's a really exciting period as an artist is where you can start learning to kind of like drop, drop the baggage, I guess. Yeah. In yeah. some ways you're like, why am I carrying this thing? Like, <laughs> let me just drop this stuff. You know, more of the joy comes into it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's been like my big goal. I've decided with art now is like, anything I draw, like I have to find like the joy in, in whatever I'm doing, whatever yeah. level that's coming in. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, what for you, like lights you on fire now as, as you're moving forward as an artist, like what excites you? Where do you find that joy? Yeah. I mean, I think it all kind of goes back to like the story that I'm telling. Um, so, I mean, it's not like it's anything that's changed per se. I'm just now finding ways to get that joy out in the things that I do instead mm -hmm. of just kind of keep it inside. Um, mm. And I think it's it's that kind of the way it's coming out more in the lines that I'm drawing and the things that I'm writing. And, and I think part of that's maturity and time and getting older. And part of it's a better connection with myself that I think mm. I struggled with for years to have. And now I'm, I'm more comfortable with that connection. And, and I find it, you know to me manifesting in ways of my work we'll see if anyone else connects with it but you know i guess as long as i'm you know enjoying it while i'm doing it <laughs> yeah that's cool i think i think healthy people happy people make better artists i'm, I'm yeah. more interested in that type of stuff than <laughs> yeah no than the really grim stuff uh, grim, yeah. st grim stuff can be cool too there's a certain joy <laughs> to that too i guess but um anyway philip thank you so much for hanging out with me today this has been a ton of fun great hey, man, to connect yeah. We'll have to have to do it in real life soon, you know. We we'll have to brave yeah. the COVID storm <laughs> and 
and just hanging out. You've been listening to How to Be an Artist. To support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA.